If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. And on today's show, we have baseball and sports business writer Maury Brown talking about a lifetime of playing hard rock and metal music and the art and science of being in one of the world's most popular ACDC tribute bands. You do not want to miss this. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me on the line back in our Brooklyn bureau, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer and noted ACDC super fan, (laughs) Gareth Hughes. Gareth, how are you doing? Uh, I have an ACDC cover band story. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> um, Which, you know what? What better time, Gareth? What better time? <laughs> right. So it was in Boston, the early aughts, and I went to see a band. I, they were called the Gravel Pit, uh, like a figs offshoot, if you're I, into By them. the way, I'm just really relieved this is not Maury's band. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> in some strange well, coincidence. <laughs> And the opening band, I forget what their name was, but they had a guy come out and they did, like, he was huge. I'm talking, like, I don't know, like, 350, 400 pounds. And they did an ACDC cover as part of the opener. And afterwards, somebody told me, yeah, that guy sings cover, like, he sings lead for an ACDC cover band called Beefy DC. And his name is Ray, he used to be the bodyguard for Boston's own Evan Dando until he got, because of Evan Dando of the Lemonheads, hooked on too many drugs and had to go home and go to rehab. And so Evan Dando wrote the song and titled the album, It's a Shame About Ray. Um, so that is the story of BC, Beefy DC, fronted by Ray of It's a Shame About in Boston in the early 2000s. The the title song from uh, their newest album right here, it's uh, A Shame About Ray. Ladies and gentlemen, Lemonheads. The best cover band name I ever heard was a cover band of The Band, and they called themselves The The Band Band. (laughs) That's pretty great. That is pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. If you were gonna so, be in a if you were gonna be in a tribute band, what would you what would be the group? Uh, I would probably be in a the band cover band. That stuff is so much fun to sing, and you could do all the basement tapes with Dylan. What about you, Jane's Recovery? Would you be like the Jane's Addiction cover band? Uh, I would have a really hard time trying to get somebody to mimic Perry. What about I, an I REM would, cover would, band? Would you call yourselves MER or would you go Mer Mer? <laughs> there are some really good REM bands. Um, I I don't know what I would call them. Um, I, I, here's my thing. Whatever band you put me in, I'm going to be that a-hole that's like really hard on the rest of the group, like Mark Wahlberg in that Rockstar movie, where I'm like, dude, that's not how Peter Buck plays that court. Like, you got to tighten right. this shit up. And I, everyone yeah. would hate me instantly. Yes, that's well put. Okay. Well, great. Okay, well, now now we get into the offensively titled Cancer Corner, and I'm not going to add, like, drop music. 
I'm not gonna add drop music to it, Gareth. But how? Oh, please! I want to know what kind of drop music that is. I mean, I like. Is it like the injury music on Fox? Like do 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 the minor key version of our theme, or is it like you know upbeat or something like that? Injury, oh, that's awesome. The injury music in a football commercial transition is 100% what the music should be. Do, 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 do. Yes, so how are you? Perfect. How are you doing? How is recovery going? You were upbeat last time we talked in terms of yeah. you, when you had been out in Jersey. How are things back uh, in Brooklyn? I got it. You know what? I don't know. I'm just gonna go ahead and tell this story because it, it means a lot to me, and I think it's a like a public way to honor somebody I've never met. But um, we were out in Jersey. It was my first day there. It was, it was second. It was our first full day there. It was Father's Day, and we sat down to watch the new hit on Netflix, "Floor Is Lava," and you know it's a goofy game show, and Rutledge, what's his name from NASCAR, was is the host, and I recognized his voice, but I couldn't place it. And I know him mostly from the Guy Fieri extended universe, so I googled the show. And the first thing that came up when I Googled the show was like five articles about this producer who worked on the show who had died and how they paid tribute to him at the end of the first episode. And, and so I clicked on the first one. It was like variety, but they were all the same. And it was about it was our like second, like I said, first full day in Montclair, New Jersey. It was Father's Day and it was the story of Tim Sullivan uh, a producer who had lived in L.A. for years, worked for Magical Elves on shows like Top Chef and had helped come up with this show. He was originally from Montclair, New Jersey, uh, went to UVM, University of Vermont, in the late 90s, uh, around the time I was just down the road at Skidmore. My parents teach at UVM now. Um, and he had worked hard on this show. Everybody loved him, and he fought for months against this disease uh, before he finally died, sadly. And if you wanted to donate to his wife and one-and-a-half-year-old son, here was a GoFundMe link. And if you wanted to donate in his name to the Calangio Carcinoma Foundation, here was that link. And it was the first time I ever saw... And I have Calangio Carcinoma, and it was the first time I ever saw my cancer like pop up in the wild. And it was for this television producer who's... Like a year and a half older than me, um, who just died from it, and I was really affected by this. It, I, I couldn't. I still can't stop thinking about him. It's why I'm telling the story now, um, because I, I don't know. I just I'm, you know, rest in peace, Tim Sullivan, and to all of your colleagues. Like I'm still thinking about you, and it just it goes to, like, why did he get the same cancer and he died within months? And why am I still alive and feeling relatively well? Um, you know, as I said to my shrink talking about this, where does good luck end and bad luck begin? I, I, I don't know. Um, but I've just been thinking about it a lot. And to answer, like, I'm doing well, but, you know, not everyone's as lucky. And uh, I've been thinking about them, him a lot. And so, you know, uh, I just want to join everybody else who paid tribute to this producer and just say, Hey man, uh, we're thinking about you, your family and all the people you worked with. Uh, cancer is a strange disease and I don't know why, uh, 
I'm still here and doing okay and have walked. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm 11,000 steps in today. I've got a decent appetite. You know, my treatment is working. Um, and I guess that's where I'm at. So strange story, I know, but it's just been on my mind a lot. So, and if any, this is as public a forum as we have. So I guess I just wanted to, uh, I don't know, share his story. So that's my update. Honestly, man, it's, it's good to, you know, just have the ability to, you know, talk about this stuff with you to help you process it. And, um, I will just keep doing what I'm doing, which is awkwardly transition us to completely <laughs> frivolous topics like metal music. Sorry. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. You know, it takes all kinds. Let's do it. All right. So our guest this week, Maury Brown, he's a senior contributor at Forbes. He's a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. You've seen his work everywhere from USA Today, Variety, Baseball Prospectus. So... He has been playing hard rock music, metal music for decades. He was in a hair metal band in the 80s, Gareth, that toured around the country. We get into that. We talk about how his musical sensibilities and tastes have gotten harder, louder, more aggressive as he's gotten older, kind of gone all in on bands like Pantera, things like that. And also he plays on he plays in this ACDC tribute act called shoot to thrill which is really popular in the pacific northwest they play routinely you know when festivals are a thing you are allowed to attend safely they play in front of crowds that are like ten thousand people deep and so we talk Mm -hmm. about that too so it's a really fun conversation with someone who's got a lot to say about rock and roll about the different genres within rock and roll about heavy metal about playing live music and also gareth about seeing Gigi Allen live in concert. You know I had to ask him about that. (laughs) Hell yeah. And speaking of horrific things, uh, after the interview, we're going to keep rolling with our Summer of Stephen King. We are doing our, what would you call this, our first official book club, Gareth? Um, We have have read uh, different seasons, and we're going to go deep on the lighthearted uh, family oh, fun oh, that oh. is apt pupils <laughs> stick around so look i found this um medium essay uh, from you about your relationship to rock and the line that kind of jumped out and grabbed me by the throat was as I've grown older my tastes have actually grown heavier and I was really curious like how so and why do you think that has happened so that's a great question you know it's interesting um, you know in the 70s and 80s um, you know, seventies was largely driven by FM radio. And that was what kind of my, my early formative years and whatnot. Um, when I first started playing, um, so I wasn't really exposed to a lot of heavy stuff. And as I started to grow and be around other musicians and look through their records and stuff that started to shift, but it's really funny. I taught my son who's now 18, how to play guitar. He wanted to learn how to play. And so I taught him, uh, I, I guess he would have been about, I guess he started when he was about 14 and now he's turned into a pretty good guitar player and has his own band and stuff. And he went really heavy. So it's just funny because what, how this turned out was, um, he started influencing me. I influenced him and then he influenced me. 
But if I was to really, if I was to really go back, I think the big difference is, um, you know, while I like popular music and I don't have really anything against it, my, my style's really pretty eclectic and broad. Um, I really think that I missed out by not taking advantage of some of the stuff that I thought was heavier and, and I really liked. And that really started to shift for me in the nineties. Uh, I'm a big Pantera fan. I think that I, I love their music so much. I was a, a huge um, Dimebag Daryl fan as a guitarist. I thought he was just a remarkable player and, you know, it's tragic and we won't get into that, but it really started to shift then. And it's gotten more, more alternative metal as I've gotten older. I, I really love the Melvins and, and bands like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's really shifted since then. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was a you know a '90s kid. Uh, I went to high school in the '90s, and so a lot like my big shift was moving from you know listening to awful Color Me Bad and in middle school, and like oh <laughs> Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, like all the grunge kind of stuff. When I went to college, my the, the guy who lived next door to me was like huge into Pantera, Slayer. Um, you know, that, and that was like an eye opening experience for me in, in, in terms of like, oh, I like hard rock, but nothing anywhere near this hard. And it was kind of like, oh, cool, let me wrap my arms around this. And I didn't become an expert or anything, but I do think it's interesting when you talk about like that you're evolving tastes. And it, a lot of times it's that gateway person that says, hey, go check out this album, check out whatever. Um, how, like, w- looking back, like, how, when do you think your first sort of entree into that heavier sound? Was and you mentioned your your son and him, uh, you know, um, exposing you a little bit. But I'm sure in your youth, you probably you know heard some of the greats or, or whatnot. How did you just compartmentalize them? Well, I, the biggest thing was is that uh, you know by the time by the time the '90s rolled around, I had been playing professionally. And look, I, I'll admit this, and even though it's something I'm not really proud of, I did hair metal band for a, a long time. Dude, be proud. And, I, like, yeah. I'm here for that content, my friend. What, tell me, yeah. give me the, we can't just yada yada this. We'll go, we'll circle back. Break this down for me. Like, we haven't even, like, we've kind of scraped the surface of your playing career, but but help us understand, like, you, the actual musician first, then maybe we can get into what's influencing you. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I started, you know, I started playing in the seventh grade. It was funny. I had an opportunity. Um, I had an elective year and said I could take art or uh, they have this beginning guitar thing. And I knew I couldn't draw a straight line. And uh, my mom <laughs> at the time had an acoustic guitar and I did it. And, um, you know, and I'm, I, you know, God bless my parents. You know, like I said, I was kind of a product of the the 70s the mid 70s and the late 70s i got exposed to a lot of music my parents listened to a lot of stuff um and so i started to branch out on my own pretty much at that point and started listening to rock i got exposed to bands like kiss and cheap trick and stuff like that and so i you know i dove pretty heavily into it i did you know now i'm going to totally date myself again there used to be these things called paper routes where kids (laughs) could go out and deliver the paper and I did that for the better part of four months and saved up and bought a 1974 Stratocaster. That was the first guitar that real guitar that I had available to me. And I had a Fender basement, which I wish I had now. It was just too clean back then. Now it'd be a great thing to have. Yeah. But I mean, from that point forward, I never really looked back. And so I uh, played through high school. You know, I was really lucky. I had, there was a full, we had a full band out of my, you know, classmates, which is a rare thing these days. And then just started playing professionally 
um, from that point forward. And, and, and I've never really stopped. I'm actually in this weird spot where I'm older now and I do a couple different things. I do an original thing, which is a lot of fun. And then I do a tribute band. I'm in a pretty popular ACDC tribute band, do, do the Malcolm Young part. And this is what's weird in the pandemic. I'd normally be playing like yesterday. I would have been playing to 10,000 people. But due to the pandemic, uh, no no festivals this year. So um, it, it's been a it's been a progress, you know. And uh, I have a thing for guitars. I, f- I find them beautiful as functional art. I own probably a dozen of them now, and uh, it's just been one of those things that it's it's you know music is one of those great things that um, I find it as a healer and a great way to. Uh, to go through a bunch of emotions and it's one of those things to where you can meet anybody no matter their political affiliations or whatever you can find people that like music and it's kind of a bridging thing i think it's one of the few things left in this world that doesn't create controversy can you talk about like just the grind of music and maybe some of the more interesting kind of uh, decisions you had in front of you as you played throughout your career yeah i mean the big one i think was is that i went out on the road for a while and I thought that that was really beneficial. I mean, when you play six days a week and you get really good at your craft. And so, you know, I mean, there, you know, look, first of all, you know, it's not for everybody. You know, I was in my early twenties. I lived out of a, you know, a suitcase. I had nothing but a suitcase really of clothes, my music gear and my motorcycle. And then, you know, and I would go and ride that we would load that in the back of the truck and I would go ahead and ride around whatever market we were playing in. And it was mostly a West coast tour stuff, but I did that for a couple of years and I just thought it was really valuable in the sense of just experiencing what it was like. Um, there were goods and bads about it. It was the eighties. So, you know, I kind of probably had a little too much fun in spots, but I think that was a huge, that was, that was really, I, I thought um, an important turning point. And I think the bigger one, was in a maturity this is a maturity thing about just me as an individual and i i for the longest time i tried to pursue what i thought would be popular i mean everybody loves to have whatever they do be popular whether i'm writing you know um or whether i'm doing radio or whatever it is you know if it's music you want to have the broadest audience like it and i realized that that was a mistake um i think that the and this was something later on you should play what makes you happy. If people come to it, great. But you should be honest and true to yourself, whatever you do. Now, some for some people, this is a natural progression. But I think it's an easy trap. You know, we're largely dictated by what our influences are that we listen to oftentimes. And we tend to travel into those places. And so um, I, I think that it's just bad. You start to make make decisions based upon what popular culture is listening to. And you're going, well, should I get ahead of the curve or how should this be? No, just play what you like. And I, I get back to kind of where I said my taste got heavier. I don't know if I felt more alive than when I just go to a dive punk bar and go see bands there or play at a mm-hmm. place like that. Mm-hmm. I enjoy playing like I enjoy doing the festival stuff. I mean, it's crazy to go out. I, I don't know how I'm doing this. I should be playing small blues clubs at this point. But there is something about smaller, the ambiance of smaller things. I find it to just be uh, just completely 100% unique and has no, it's not contrived at all. It's honest. It's, you know, it's raw, but in in and of itself, because of that, it's true to itself and it never seems to compromise. And I think that that's a valuable thing. 
I remember reading, um, I think it was Michael Azarad's book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, about like uh, Black Flag and Butthole Surfers and all the bands mm-hmm. of like the 80s and 90s, like touring, crashing on couches, like kind of staying. Was that your experience back then? Yeah, I mean, I slept in the band truck for more than a while. And look, it wasn't a band. It was a, <laughs> it was a big, we had, you know, at, at the time, you know, we were bringing in PA lights, everything with us. And it was pretty substantial. Um, and it was, this is before we had nice motor lights and stuff, you know, we had, it was all fixed park hands and we had like, I don't know, 120, 130 of them. So, um, there were a couple of times where we didn't have enough money for hotel and I slept inside the box. It was a cab over. And so I remember when it was, I think it was late September and it dropped down to below freezing and I'm sleeping on the hard deal with this. It was me and the drummer in our sleeping bag and it's just freezing to death. So that, I mean, is one thing. I mean, there was some nice stuff I played. Um, I was in Reno at one point and, um, Ronnie James Dio was recording the lock up the wolves album. This is, you know, he kind of shifted a little bit past the Holy diver and, um, last in line album and had a different lineup. And he came out from the studio and sat in with my band for a while. And that was pretty amazing. Um, stayed up all night, pretty much. Dio was pretty straightforward. I mean, God rest his soul. He was the sweetest guy and really just, you know, he was measured and everything. Now the rest of the band was pretty crazy. I hung out with, um, Jens Johansson, who was the keyboardist played with Ingve Malmsteen for a while. And he and I, he, we sat down at a piano. We were in this. So we were at the club that we were at, we got done. We went next door and there was this other like tiny dive bar. And in the corner was a piano that had all the sharps and flats, the black keys completely ripped off. So the, the keyboard's completely flat. And we're all drunk. I mean, we were absolutely loaded. And and uh, he goes, you know, do you like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? I go, oh, it's awesome. And he goes, he goes, I go, Tarkas. And so for those that don't know Tarkas, it's like this massively difficult prog rock song. And I had played keyboards for a while. And he goes, I'll teach you. And I'm like, come on, man. And he was, he was, he was absolutely obliterated. No sharps. Like I said, the keyboard's completely flat. So no raised keys. And he sat down and played this exceptionally difficult Keith Emerson song. And he goes, and he's trying to teach it to me. And I'm like, come on, man, you can't be serious. But I mean, there were other stories. I can't really talk about them. I mean, they were, you know, debauchery, I think was probably par for the course in the eighties. Right. Um, So there was a lot of that, but, you know, the travel, you know, that was the thing you'd get done at, at loadout and get everything done. And of course it was all hands on deck, um, except for our singer who used to seem to disappear at loadout. Um, but <laughs> we, then we, then we, you know, you would get in a vehicle and drive. And I remember one night, um, we got playing, we were playing in freaking Boise, Idaho of all places. And we drove. I want to say six hours and we got to our destination. There was a band house that we were playing at. And when we or a band house that we we're staying at for the club. And when we got there, there was probably 25, 30 people um, sitting outside in the yard and on the front steps waiting for us to arrive. And, you know, you're exhausted and just want to sleep. But, um, you know, I was young and had a lot of energy and, you know, it, it, so it made for a lot of fun. I mean, it was a little bit much. It wore me out. I, I, I would say this, it's great to go out on the road, but it's not something, I don't know how people do extensive tours when you're just starting. 
like that. I mean, there, you have to have a lot, you have to, you, you can't party every night. And I know some do, but you'll just burn out. You'll be non-functional and, and not be able to create at a certain point. And I, so that, that's, I think one of the bigger lessons. I mean, it's like, it, it was a lot of fun at, on one hand, but it was one of those things to where I burned the candle so hard at both ends that it just made it difficult to do more than a couple of years of it. Right. And and what was the band name? And, and you said it was kind of that hair metal sound. Were you more kind of polished? Uh, you know, like uh, uh, I, I always hair metal is a typical thing to define, right? I mean, we were just recently debating, you know, some certain bands sort of have, you know, Van Halen have, you know, transcended the label completely. You've got bands like Crew, which, you know, I think have more kind of musical griminess in the early part of their uh, run than than the more high gloss bands that came later, your warrant or or things like that. Where where did you fall on the spectrum, and what can you tell us about the a- outfit uh, overall? Yeah, I mean, it was more along the lines of somewhere in between. If you were going to go, Josh, and I hate to say this, so it was more Rat meets Cinderella meets Guns and Roses meets ACDC. <laughs> so it was kind of in that it's a hell of span, a cocktail you know? party right there <laughs> yeah so it wasn't you know i mean there was some stuff i did earlier that was like i was in a band that was like it, it might as well have been a queens clone i mean it was like we were we were so close to being queens um but this that band that i toured with was largely like that and it was you know the output was you know it was what it kind of was i mean um, it, you know, it, it, it was one of those things to where, um, I, I just think that once again, we were more and in, kind of involved in like, let's just have fun and not really thinking about it much beyond that. Um, we thought maybe something might happen when we hooked up with Dio, um, we tried to stay in touch with them, but it never really moved past that. You know, it's just, that's the other thing. Yeah. It's just make music. That's why that make music for yourself kind of thing really rings true. When did you link up? Cause you play in shoot to thrill now still currently, correct? Yeah. When yeah. did you, when did you all, I mean, and you, you've kind of mentioned, you know, playing at festivals and whatnot, but like, when did you link up with them and how is, is that experience different? Um, when you are channeling, uh, when you're channeling a different, uh, groups, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, vibe, style that kind of thing versus um you know simply playing originals so there's kind of like three spaces around music when you do it right there's the original thing which is of course all born out of whatever your influences are and you write your own thing and you hopefully become someone that yourself you know and become your you know something unique there's a cover band right which is you go out and you play a lot of people's music right you're not really i mean you want to play it pretty close but you don't have to be you know perfect about it Tribute bands, which the, the thing I'm in is really just a super deep dive. And I mean, I don't know how many hours I've sat down and listened to it, watched people, talked to people that weren't around the band and other professional musicians that are into them. You try and mirror it as close as possible. And I mean, that goes down to your gear that you own going after guitar tones is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's turned into a religion, but for me, I was always into ACDC. And what's funny is a guitar player that I went out on the road with that I did the, I talked about the two year thing. He and I bumped back into each other about, gosh, it's been about 15 years ago. And he was always really good at playing Angus. And he, so 
I was in a cover band at the time. I mean, that's what I'd done full circle. I had kids and I was doing the sports thing and I wasn't really giving music that much thought. I mean, I was doing it because it was fun and not really taking it too terribly serious. And, uh, I said, Ted, it'd be great if you come out. Ted's the other guitar player. I go, it'd be great if you came out, you know? And he goes, I'll only do it if I can bring my son. And I went, okay. And he goes, he's really good at ACDC. And, uh, I went, okay, fine. Well, his kid showed up and at the time he looked more like Justin Bieber than anything. And I was like, <laughs> so we were, you know, it was a small club. It was a small club. And I said, all right, man, let's just play. I ripped off, you know, four or five ACDC songs that were, you know, standard covers that everybody knows. Highway to hell shot down in flames. We did a bunch of stuff off of the highway to hell album. And I remember, so he kid walks up and everybody was talking and we started and the minute he hit the mic, it was like something straight out of the movies. Everybody's head just caught to the, to the stage and went, mm-hmm. what is this? So that was the point there had started. There's a great tribute band scene in the Portland area where I live. Um, my, uh, I'm a management company called JFL presents. And he was this guy, Jason Feldman is brilliant in the sense that he understood that by basically doing, you know, collaborative things that if we had multiple bands, you could put together great bills. And if you supported me this weekend, I'll support you the next weekend and great grown this great culture to where we're now making, you know, good money and doing it. So that was, that was the impetus of it. And there had been, I think two or three, um, tribute bands in the Portland area. But once I saw that there was that, I said, we should really do this. And you're playing the small clubs. I'm playing at small clubs. This is music that we all love. We, I've always loved ACDC. So it was like, Hey man, let's see what we can do with this. Well, you know, we were pretty good at it. And so, you know, it op- opened up opportunities and it's, you know, I mean, it's bought me more gear than I ever could back in the day. I'm no longer <laughs> doing paper routes. That's for damn sure. I mean, it's great. I don't have to use any of my other income. I mean, a lot of musicians have to, you know, that are weekend warriors have to use, you know, whatever their money they earn their income during the day to buy music gear. And look, it's, it's not a cheap thing to get involved in. So now, you know, what I do pays for my, you know, habit. I always joke that I'm almost done with my wife. How many more guitars do you need? Honey, I'm almost done. No matter how many guitars I have, I'm almost done. So, um, it is, it has been one of those things where it fully pays for that and helps infuse some extra money into the, you know, household income on top of my writing gigs. So, you know, it's, it's been a great thing. They're such an interesting band to, um, channel because they had two distinctly different lead singers. So Mm -hmm. is, is that a, a unique or interesting challenge to be on stage and to be really be thinking about what is, okay, what is this band like now with this person on the mic and how is my performance changing, evolving, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, that's the most difficult thing about this. It really is. Now there's some other, there's a great uh, ACDC tribute. I'm, I'm not opposed to, you know, when I see something good, um, I, whether they're competing with me or not, but there's a band called problem child out of Seattle that uses two singers. They've got their mm-hmm. bond and they've got their Brian. Um, we don't do that. Um, certainly Brian Johnson covers the Bond Scott stuff and it's different, you know. Um, it was interesting when Brian Johnson, you know, had his problems with his hearing, um, and Axel Rose came in. Axel Rose actually, you know, and I'm not a humongous Guns N' Roses fan, but I thought he did a, a really 
you know, I thought he did a, a very good job of channeling Bon Scott. Um, it is difficult and it is different. And we are always focusing on that. And our singer, Evan, has that's his biggest challenge. And we're always trying to, like, talk about the inflection and how he does it. And the difficult thing about it is, look, it's really easy for me to go out and buy an amp and buy a guitar and go ahead and toy with different tones and basically be able to get really, really, really close. I can go buy the guitars. I can go buy the same amps. I can work on my, you know, how my phrasing is and work on that. And I can pretty much mirror the guitar tones perfectly. It's different with your voice. Your voice, of course, is naturally however it's going to be. And it doesn't always fall within the range. And that's with mm-hmm. for my singer, he can actually handle all the Brian Johnson stuff, the real screamy stuff, the real high stuff, better than some of the lower stuff that Brian Johnson hits. He does very, you know, he's, he's, God bless him. He's done really pretty well across the bond stuff, but it's a give and take. I mean, it's, it's not perfectly aligned across the whole thing, but he does it well enough to where obviously, I mean, I wouldn't be playing in front of 10,000 people, um, you know, on, during the summer or 6,000 or whatever the, the, the festival is going to be um, if we, if he wasn't able to do it pretty well. What's the best ACDC song to play live and why? Oh man, for me, I, it's gotta be let there be rock. Mm. I love it because it's, you know, it's, it's just this hard driving. It's a longer piece and it's just got so much energy. Um, I love that. I mean, look, I'm not going to lie that playing highway to hell or TNT because of the fan interaction is there, but just from a personal perspective, I just think that it's in this perfect sweet spot for the band, the recording, the, the studio recording was starting to pick up from, from where they were early. Um, it's not in the Mutt Lang era where you get into Highway to Hell and right. so it was about to rock and back in black, but um, it, I still love it for what it is. And, and it shifts. I mean, I would say that that one, I love Riff Raff, and they're kind of you Riff Raff, that um, you're kind of kind of in the same mode, more of the high energy stuff. I, I'd look at those those kind of t- songs. Right. Well, when we talked, when you said you want to talk metal, the first question that kind of popped into my mind is how does one define metal music? Where to you is the, is the line between, you know, what we would classify as hard rock versus metal, heavy metal? And, and look, I know there's a million subgenres within that. We'll get to that. But just where, where do you draw the line? Yeah, I mean, this is probably a good question. This is the the large question. Like, I wouldn't put Aerosmith or ACDC in the metal category. Mm-hmm. That's to me is hard rock, even you know. And it's largely, I think, dictated by um, a lot of it. I think is guitar tone, guitar bass, and I maybe, and I'm biased here. But when you get your guitar really saturated with you know more additional distortion, and you're really you're really moving into that, I, I think that that has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, there were some bands, obviously I, I don't look at GNR or I didn't look the, you know, the eighties, the hair metal bands, this is what's interesting. I looked at some of them as being pure metal, you know, it just, you know, whether it was quiet, riot. I mean, there were some bad bands yeah. back then. I'm sorry. I, you know, that's my heyday, but it wasn't there. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's somewhat subjective, but I, I largely look at it that way. I mean, the bigger one is like the, 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 the burning, debate is always whether grunge was technically metal or anything like the subgenres. I never, I never saw grunge as being anything but rock. I mean, if I think of metal, I always go to Sabbath. It was largely, you know, it was guitar and heavy guitars to start with. 
in there and you look at how they've influenced everything. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd look at that. That's how I guess I would split that stuff. And once again, I think it's just kind of subjective. Um, I don't have like, I love Thin Lizzy and I love, you know, the classic, you know, UFO is probably my favorite um, band of all time. And it's a very melodic and has a bunch of textures to it, you know, and I'm a big Michael Schenker fan. Um, but like in the metal space, you know, you get into more of a style and, a, you know, if you want to get into thrash and stuff like that, I mean, you get into Metallica or Anthrax, mm-hmm. you know, certainly Slayer and stuff like that. And those, that gets into the subgenres. I, mean, I think we kind of go, when we think of heavy metal, we think of, you know, Metallica or something like that. And I know, I think it's a little more diverse than that. But, you know, I mean, it got cr- pretty crazy. It got so poppy there for a while and so mainstreamy, you know, is poison metal. I just, always felt uncomfortable with that that yeah. was more glam that was more glam to me and certainly motley crew is kind of that band that kind of you mentioned that you know they started off much heavier they were like a true metal band in my right. mind like shout at the devil yeah they went kind of glammy you know and started wearing the makeup and did that thing and then traversed into you know the bob rock era stuff where you get into you know dr feelgood and i'm not a huge motley crew fan i think they're kind of overhyped they were certainly gosh they were one of those bands that I saw later on live. I don't know how I missed them. I've gotten to so many shows and somehow I skipped them. And boy, man, Vince Neil was bad. But, you know, it's just, it's, it is, it is one of those things to where um, I, I've always loved stuff that had more energy. I, I the Pan, seeing Pantera live was one of the best shows I ever saw in my life. I completely came unhinged. I mean, that's the thing I love about music. There are times when you go to something and you completely let your inhibitions go and you're not worried about what anybody thinks. And that was one of those moments. I I completely came uncorked and I love that. I love the, you know, the ability to get all that energy out and the energy that it provides, you know, to you when you have that sort of thing. For me, like metal, hard rock is a mood music a lot of times. I got I want to be out working out or out doing something. And yet I had friends who in high school would listen to like Gigi Allen doing homework. I mean, like cra- crazy shit. So from from your perspective, and you mentioned being at the show, kind of experiencing the music in a, in a more physical, visceral way. How do you like to experience this music? Or is it something you can get kind of quiet, contemplative with as well? Just kind of listening and appreciating the, the you know, the melodic aspects of it uh, that happen to be there. Well, it's funny you mentioned Gigi Allen. It's still the craziest show I ever went to in my life. You went to a Gigi um, Allen show? I did. We are burying he, all the leads in this, man. <laughs> he, he crapped on stage. He did oh. the whole thing. I had long hair at the time. I actually left early because I was afraid I was going to get my ass kicked when I left. I mean, it, it was crazy. But... Um, n- I, when I write, I don't listen to anything. I really can't. It, it, mm-hmm. I'll get, I just get immersed into it. I mean, it depends on what, you know, what my mood is. It really does. I mean, um, I, I kind of mentioned, I mean, we could have spent a whole segment on just prog rock and prog metal. Sure. And I'm big into that stuff too. Um, it, it really depends on, on my mood. I might listen to something like I, so Jeff Beck is my guitar hero. Um, I wish I was Jeff Beck. I try and play Jeff Beck. I stayed at a, a you know, um, uh, you know, Holiday Inn Express last night, but I'll never be Jeff Beck. Um, but I like if I put something like that on, I think it would probably distract me. 
um, I'd want to start to listen to it. I'm one of those people that I, I just, I'm kind of this way. It's kind of OCD. I want to just start breaking it down. Mm-hmm. Um, music to me, um, there, there are just some things where I want to immerse myself in the, what is going on as a player. This isn't to say that it's, I think it's great that there are people that I always say play lead stereo. You don't have to play music to be a real fan of it. I mean, I think that sometimes musicians look down on just people that listen to music because they, oh, they don't listen to it. They don't understand the complexities of it, blah, blah, blah. And that's the other thing why I think punk and, and harder rock where it's more simple that it's, you know, it's, it's more visceral thing. That I think is the biggest attraction to me about heavier music is that it is a, it, it provides, it's more of an emotional release kind of thing. It is not slick by any stretch. As a matter of fact, you probably shouldn't be playing slick music, you know, punky. It's funny, you listen back to some earlier stuff and it sounds, you know, whether it's the Ramones or Sex Pistols, I think, you know, until you get into stuff like Black Flag, right? Or, you know, or you get into Fugazi or some of this other stuff, you start to get into Minor Threat. You start to get into stuff like that. And then, of course, it's it's really raw, and then the mistakes are there, and it's a, it's there with all the warts. And I find something about that terribly honest. So I listen to music for kind of different reasons. If I want to get cerebral, then I'll go ahead and I'll put on Al Miola, or I'll go and you know put on Frank Zappa if I want to get really weird. If I want to listen to stuff for pure, um, just to marvel at guitar players, then I might, you know, go through some of the classic guys, you know, I'll go listen to Jeff Beck or Michael Schenker, or, you know, Ingbe or whoever that's going to be. But when it comes to punk and, and as metal does this metal kind of traverses this, there are players that are technically great and have a lot of great tonal qualities about them. And this is kind of where we haven't touched on this. There's a style, there's the ability to play technical. Like I'm not a big Kirk Hammett fan and he's technically great. I just never thought he had a lot of feel. They write great music. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're not the biggest metal band in the world for, you know, without doing something right. I just never thought he had a lot of feel to it. And so there get you get into whatever your vibe is. I think that it's why it's really important to be as broad as possible in what you listen to. Look, I, I know a kid, God bless him. He's is a drummer. He's the biggest Neil Peart fan that ever walked this planet. And he is going to be the best Neil Peart clone that ever played. And I've seen him play. I've played with him. And it's amazing. But it doesn't really lend yourself to being exceptionally broad. Now, the good thing about him is, is he listens to rap. So how that winds up, you know, morphing <laughs> and how he fuses those two together could be something really amazing. But I, I do think that one, once again, the big thing is, is that the more, the more diverse that you can make yourself, you know, you're there. I've struggled with country, commercial country music. I'm not really good at it. Um, I did have a very good friend who recently passed away. That was the front of house guy, um, for a major act. And, you know, it, um, I was going to go and then, and then he died. So that was kind of a sad thing, but, um, it, it is one of those things to where, um, it really reflects your mood on how you, what you're doing and around the house. I mean, it'll be whatever I'm trying to kind of put in whatever space I'm in, you know, yeah. I might listen to pink, Flo- pink Floyd late at night. You know, I don't, I don't, although I fall asleep with Pantera or something heavy going on, you know, Mastodon or, you know, red Fang or whatever the heck I'm listening to at the time. But, um, 
it, you know, it's, it's kind of rare. That's more of a morning get up and go kind of thing. Drive. We might, if I'm driving around town, you know, not to, uh, uh, crib something from high fidelity, but you know, given that you're a writer and musician, if you could like, let's just say you had worked for cream or rolling stone or something like that for any five year stretch in history, what, what would you have wanted? What, what scene would you have wanted to chronicle? Look, the seventies, I think are there, you know, you're almost famous phase. You know, yeah. you know, I th- I think that, you know, Crow's depiction of that, I think is there was some there was some relative innocence still going on with music. It wasn't such a huge monster. I think that that would have been it. And I, I really love the 90s. I thought that yeah. it was a great I, I so the 90s to me are really when you took the 70s Black Sabbath and you took kind of you gave it some more texture and color while remaining very heavy and, and, you know, dark, I'm into dark. So great, you know, do that. Um, there was some other stuff, obviously, you know, the industrial movement and, you know, ministry and nine inch nails and stuff like that. I thought really added some uniqueness to it. So that was kind of interesting, but you know, as there was, you know, the, there was kind of the romantic element of the seventies that I kind of like while there was the drugs and everything. And certainly, you know, way too many heroin overdoses, but it just seemed to be a lot darker in the nineties, that might be the only thing I didn't, I wouldn't like, you know, it was kind of like, Hey, cool. We're all doing drugs, but wow, this is really depressing yeah. you know, on, on another level. So, um, yeah, those are kind of the two eras. If I could skip any era and this is, like I said, it's so funny because I, it was really where I started to play more prominently was the eighties. I just thought of it. While there are certain areas of it, the, the, the era that I was in or the, the genres that I was in was way too slick. I wish I had gotten more. Um, I wish I had retained some of the 70s, um, early 80s punk and not drifted so far into the commercial side of stuff. Um, I, I just, uh, boy, it was just bad. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not alone. I, I remember reading The Dirt by Motley Crue, which got mm-hmm. turned into that movie. But Tommy Lee talking about how he wanted to tour with the Stooges. And, you know, the label was like, nah, we're going to hook you up with Warrant or whomever. And, and just him being depressed. Like, you know, this, is, this isn't this is really the, the vibe I want to be projecting musically. So I, I think there were a lot of people there that were happy to cash the checks, but probably wished they had retained more of the influences that got them into that genre overall. Yeah. And this is the problem. I mean, this is always since, you know, I think Frank Zappa said it best, like he was talking about how music was when he came around. Frank Zappa would never have been signed. Never. Nobody ever that crazy back then, you know, the A&R kid, you know, basically said, hey, here's a band. And the guy that ran the, the label was some old stodgy guy with his cigar. He says, I, you know, I don't know what this is all about, but, you know, we need some music to fill out our catalog. So I trust you. Well, the problem was, is the A&R kid grew up, became the guy that was the president. And he suddenly re- said, this is what kids want. And that's where I think it largely changed. I don't think that we're nearly as experimental now streaming and be- having Bandcamp and allowing for a more organic ability for people to co-publish and do stuff and be found that way has done it. And that and radio, of course, is pretty much non-existent now. And I think that that largely has changed the landscape a little bit. It's difficult because I, I don't think people realize that artists were manufactured. I mean, you, you know, a label would get behind it. They would say, this is the next big thing. They would go to the radio stations and go, this is what you're going to play. And that's what you heard. 
I mean, you know, in the early 70s, you had, you know, bands like Rush who got discovered out of Cleveland or wherever the heck it was. That 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 no longer happens. I mean, it's a manufactured process. So, you know, I, I, I think that that's what's largely changed about the industry. So to close out, you mentioned uh, if we ever get back to, to touring, to playing as someone who, you know, plays in front of these large you know festival crowds, feeds off their energy. How how has it been to be on the sideline here? How worried are you about the long term effects of the uh, kind of shutdown of public gatherings that size? So, you know, look, I don't play, you know, festivals or summers. Um, I'll do, you know, 500 to 600 people, you know, sometimes as much as 350 to 400 in the fall and winter months. Um, independent music venues are under extreme duress. And if anybody's listening to this podcast, you should go out there vehicles to try and get politicians to understand that um, if you like live music, um, there are a lot of venues that are not being supported right now. I think it's very difficult. You know, it's one thing if you're a restaurant slash bar slash I've got live music on the weekend. It's another thing when you have a venue that is totally supported by um, alcohol sales and concerts. And that is they are really, really in trouble right now because it was the first thing to go. And it'll be the last thing that comes back are large events. And so I do worry about it. I worry about it a lot. I, I worry about the artists. I really worry about the venues. And it's a it's a it's a problem that of course is global. So I when when and if we do come back, the large concert tours will, you know, they'll be able to always be there because they can use, you know, sports facilities, arenas and and stadiums to go ahead and do it. But the independent venues, um, a lot of them are gonna be gone. And I don't know if something new comes out of it or not, but um, it, it's a real concern. I feel greatly, uh, you know, for my, and my market in Portland and Seattle area. I, I really feel for these independent venues. And uh, I, I just hope that they get some kind of financial support out of the government. I mean, if we're doing PPP for freaking Kanye and the Lakers, then we should be able to do something for live music venues. DJ and we are back in the sports world athletes coaches media they all do interesting things that show off their personalities and interests beyond sports then we the fans and the media tell them stop being interesting you're being a locker room distraction that's ridiculous life is just work and the things that distract us from work so on this show we end by celebrating what's distracting us and gareth i mean all summer long it's been a Stephen King distraction, bro. Ever since we did our top five Stephen King books, you and I have been busy on the boards, uh, securing hardcovers, securing paperbacks. And today we're going to break down our first shared read. Uh, apologies to the very few people that listen to this show if you're not a Stephen King fan, because I get the feeling <laughs> we might roll this this back a couple more times here um, before the end of the year, especially since I now own 29 Stephen King books after well, Garrett sent me that link. I have a, I, I have a thought I want to add on this. Like, I think that somebody was, I, I saw some conversation about this recently that it was like, basically, what is it you've done? Like, what project or thing have you undertaken during the pandemic that you want to share? And I think for you and I, like, I've read other books. I've enjoyed some other books. But I think for us, like, I also think that there are like, 
538 asks, like, what have you been eating that was different than before? And for me, that answer would be Twix ice cream bars have been a odd major part of my diet every night. But I think for you and I, the pandemic has been our opportunity to revisit uh, the Stephen King universe. So, um, or King's Dominion, as it is called on the Losers Club. And thank you, Michael Rothman, for really helping to inspire this. And so even if you're bored of it, just try to think of it more as a, well, this became a pandemic project. So there you go. I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, And candidly, I forgot how much I enjoyed reading these books because it's kind of the equivalent to me of when you're, you know, we have endless TV and streaming options now, but all the time I get up and I'm like, I don't want to watch any of this stuff. I just, I'm going to reboot up like, some movie I've seen a million times. It's This is a comfort read for me. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds weird to my family that scary shit is like comforting, but these were books we grew up with that we're revisiting in some cases, or we're discovering like new, new stuff, like different seasons, which we're going to talk about today. But the style is so essentially king that it does feel um, like you're just kind of binging on some, some comfort, uh, you know, entertainment. In, yeah. in a weird way, even they're though, all even interconnected, right? You know, so it, it helps to like it's fun to do a bunch of them at once because you start to see the different ways. I'm like, did you get that idea? Like, did this sentence lead to that book? You know, something like that came up recently in something I was reading, and so yeah, it's um, the way they all interconnect makes it a fun project. So. Different Seasons is a book came out in the early 80s, and it's got four stories in it. The first one is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which we all know became um, uh, the movie. Uh, and, and Shawshank Redemption. There is no the in the <laughs> title. <laughs> but we all know this became the celebrated um, film adaptation, um, uh, Robocop. <laughs> and I can't remember. I think we talked. I can't remember if we talked about it just in the car when I was driving a, you know, back to Ohio recently, or if we talked about it on the pod, I don't want to dwell on Shawshank. I mean, if you've seen the movie, you've read the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was weird. It's like watching a play of your life because I've just seen that movie so many times and I'm reading it and they, they're so faithful in so many ways to the narration and to certain like moments happening. It was pretty surreal to actually consume. Did you feel that way? Yeah, I what really stood out for me is what I think Frank Darabont made a, an absolutely fantastic adaptation of that. And I mean adaptation of it in the best way. Like he changed a lot and got the spirit of it 100% correct. Um, you know, like Red talking about his thoughts on parole and what rehabilitation means. That stuff comes up in the first page and a half of the short story. And it's basically his final speech in the film. And I'm like, man, you really had a command of this material to be able to use that later. Um, the stuff he changed, I thought was fantastic. Um, I don't know. I think it's a better movie than a book, but, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to read to your point. I don't know how to read that book without playing the movie in my head the whole time. So it, it didn't it, work for me. I even went a step further. Like, I don't know how to read it, not in Morgan Freeman's voice. Right. Like, right, I just literally right. could not hear anything except for, like, Andy Dufresne. Was, yep. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, 
okay, there's also the body which became Stand By Me. And I, I mentioned to you yesterday, I felt like it's a bit of a prototype for it. Like it's got all the nostalgia of childhood in mm-hmm. uh, and, and sort of ex- exploring. It, it's a it kind of a classic coming of age story. But I, I, as someone who's favorite Stephen King book is it. I, I just, I'm kind of bored having them run from stuff that's not Pennywise. <laughs> I just, it's interesting to hear you say that. I think it might be the best thing he ever wrote, but I think you're right. I do think it is the map for it. And um, yeah, I, I like, I think it can be both those things. I think it can be one of the best things he ever wrote. I mean, it's quintessentially King with all the nostalgia, the 1960s, um, things like that. But at the same time, like, I think, you know, you can love it or hate it, but I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And it's, it's well-written. It's good. Um, I never really saw, I don't know if I've seen the movie all the way through. I've seen clips. The movie fucked me up, dude. It like the, the lard ass puking bit freaks me out so much as a kid. I saw it when I was too young and I think I was too young I, my parents had said, don't see movies like this. Like, you're not supposed to. Like, it was a rule in our house. And then I did anyway at Patrick Oni's house. And, like, three weeks later when I couldn't sleep, I went up and had to admit that I had not, that I had broken the rule and seen the movie. And my punishment was basically the fact that I had had to live with this for three weeks. So. <laughs> and then there's a, a ghost story at the end called The Breathing Method, which, I mean... It's fine. Um, I don't know that we want to get into it. Apt pupil, though, we definitely wanted to get into. <laughs> and our summer of Stephen King starts off with a feel-good, uh, jovial <sighs> hit. I mean, look, this is some dark shit. And I, I think the reason that we wanted to talk about it was because, to me, there's a huge difference between 70s Stephen King and 80s Stephen King. And I'd love for us to talk about what those differences are and then maybe try to figure out where the dividing line is. And I say this in the same way that, you know, The Simpsons is like, to, the 60s died for me that day, December 31st, 31st 1969. 1969. No, I mean, but I think 70s Stephen King extends into those early 80s um, titles. And there's a certain point when the subject matter gets a little bit glossier. Um, it gets a lot more stylistic and, and less mean and nasty in the same ways, if that makes sense. Like this is a really grounded, realistic, vile story. And I liked it a lot. I mean, I, I liked it for what it was doing, but I was blown away. As someone who saw the the Brian Singer movie, Oh, you did see the movie. Okay. Yeah, I saw it in the theaters way back in the day. I, I, you know, I think we were all kind of constitutionally required to try to make Brad Renfro happen. So I went. Mm-hmm. It was his follow-up to Usual Suspect. Well, talk about the beats of the story. Why don't you give us a quick summary of what this bad boy is about? Um, well, it's about... I forget the main kid's name because uh, I read it a few weeks ago. It's about a young kid who discovers that his neighbor, his old, much older neighbor, is actually uh, a Nazi war criminal. And this kid is really obsessed in a very gross way with the Holocaust, particularly, quote-unquote, the gushy parts 
And so he basically blackmails his neighbor into telling him all these stories of what he did running at death camp. Um, so the kid who's probably like 14 when the story begins, won't rat him out to the Israeli authorities that would then kill him. And kid's name is Todd. Kid's name is Todd, Todd, by the way, which is death. The word for death in German. Oh, really? Um, yes. Yeah. King didn't know that I wrote, I read this later. King did not know that when he wrote the kid's name was Todd and his editor was like, oh, that's a brilliant touch. You must. And he was like, yeah, that's what I was going for. <laughs> um, anyway, it plays out as this psychosexual dance between Todd and Dunker as um, the sociopathic boy meets his match in a sociopathic man. And he they... Uh, they make each other do more and more. It starts out as just normally duplicitous things and quickly becomes murderously violent things until the end is just kind of uncanny for our times and awful. Um, I don't know. I read the story late into the night. I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I didn't want to stop reading it. Like I wanted to finish it in one go because I didn't want it to carry over into any other days. It's like 200 pages, man. Dude, it was really, I don't know. There are parts I had to skim because it's really, look, Stephen King has said, I write visceral things. I want you to feel something when reading it. I sure felt something. It was really disturbing. Um, but that is why you read him. It's fascinating to deal with something that's that disturbing, but real. You know, Nazi as exactly. boogeyman is an interesting take. Well, oh th- man, th- th- that's what that's one of the things I want to talk about because I think Stephen King, especially early on, gets this rap of like, "What if a car was haunted?" What if a dog was haunted? <laughs> We've talked about that before. <laughs> what if this hotel was fucking haunted? Mm. This is just a really simple premise. Like this kid is a, and I think of this as a story of awakening. The kid, it's awakening and reawakening. Both are sociopaths. the The old man has tr- has done enough in his life to sort of suppress the complicated feelings he has about all this stuff. But Todd showing up in his life and like kind of blackmailing him, forcing him to recount all this stuff, reawakens this energy in him. I mean, he starts like Todd brings him a, a Nazi uniform. He makes him wear it. Then, the, you know, the old man has dreams, but when he puts the uniform on and sleeps in him like jammies, the dreams stop. You know, he, he starts to become, to realize he's comforted in a strange way by the atrocities that he's done, which is, again, it's not played for empathy. Like it's horrifying. <laughs> right. And then Todd is, is, awakening this these like homicidal tendencies and that that's what's crazy about this book dude i kind of just thought and maybe this is the movie i don't remember a lot of it but i i can't imagine the movie had the todd character being this evil but like this dude becomes a serial killer like he's out there like killing homeless people he's fantasizing about sexual assault he's fantasizing about torture and then ultimately it pays off with like a, a true atrocity that he, you know, he considers 
committing and just kind of going all in on like, this is who I am. And I do think King, it's a really interesting story about, you know, do you have any other choice if you're hardwired like this? And I think at the end, you kind of see that like, uh, Dusender, um, or the German guy. Yeah. Yeah. The Nazi Dunker. Yeah. Yeah. He can run from it. He can deny it, but he can't escape what he's done. And the, the kind of horrifying other question is like, is someone like this Todd guy like above rehabilitation? Like, was there any choice for him or was he always sort of destined to become who he was going to become? I, I don't know. I think those are like interesting, complicated themes that King is exploring. Yeah. It also it was written, as you put it, in like the late 70s, early 80s. like he wrote The Shining and then sent in his first draft of The Shining, and as he was kind of like waiting for notes, wrote this. By the way, that's like the darkest year of a person's creative life right there, my God. (laughs) It's taken some heat for how the Nazi stuff has aged, and it's like Nazi as boogeyman really lets some people off the hook and stuff like that. Like, you know, these were actual choices that people made you know, some of that criticism is deserved. At the same time, the way he writes a teenage sociopath and it sort of builds up to what becomes a mass shooting really anticipates the way we now see young white men sociopaths, including the whole way Todd is depicted with, you know... You know, he was an like he got good grades and he was an all American baseball player. And like he's the last one he would have expected and things like that. Like he was way ahead of that in the way he wrote him and the way he sticks with you. Well, and in this this case, like in the modern context, the, the Nazi would be the Internet. Right. Like Todd had to go to him to find and discover these like horrible atrocities that he felt like were censored out of books. He wanted the real deal perspectives. And I do think in today's era, that's easier to find than ever. And I think right, it, it, right. It, to, so when you talk about how this was... Reddit is, yeah, Reddit is of the course. bad guy here. If you found it too disturbing or you found it to be insensitive, I'm not going to get in your face about that. Yeah, by, by the way, like I would recommend reading this if you want to read something that's really disturbing and uncomfortable... I would not recommend reading it if you're triggered by Holocaust stuff. Sure. So there, done. Yeah, and, Go, but I, yeah. I never, like, I think King does portray him in a complicated, interesting way. He's consistently banging the same drum of, I was just following orders, and it, like, you know, d- don't look at me, I didn't know everything that's going on. And then I, I always thought of that as like a lie or an excuse. And I think Todd mm-hmm. sees through it too and is like, I don't give a shit. You did it. I just want to hear about it. And I think Todd's like laser focus on tell me about it is like an immovable force that actually forces Dustinder to have to come to terms with this stuff. And when he does that, I mean, he's been trying to escape it or at least, you know, forget about it. And when he does have to think about it, that's when that that sort of it's just easier for him, I think to silence any guilt that he has or any regrets that he has or any just whatever disappointments whatever in his life 
he just mm-hmm. finds that it's easier and more seductive to just go into the you know steer into the skid of his worst impulses and and i i think that's interesting and yet it never lets him off the hook at the very end when he's kind of found out and forced to consider suicide that last thought that he has about you know i'm escaping the dreams that have haunted me the the screams of my victims and then that like worrying thought what if i'm not silencing this what if i have an eternity of facing this oh yeah this is this is good horror I don't know. I guess that's my way of saying I just don't think King lets him off the hook. This story could have been way clumsier in terms of how it handled it or how it, it, it in trying to make him seem more redeemable or or if it had played it for like a end of the story reveal like, oh, he thought he was good right. all the time. But oh, no, it turns out he's actually bad and he kills Todd. Or something. You don't get that. You, he takes you along for the ride. And he, I don't think he ever pretends this dude isn't anything more than he is, which is just a fucking sociopath and a lowlife who's at the end of his at end of the line and ultimately um, can't outrun his demons. Yeah. And the way they, I don't know, kind of bring out the worst in each other is from a horror writer's perspective, incredibly compelling and effective, you know, like Stephen King is trying to write things that make you feel something, make you feel dread, make you question what you know and about the world and things like that. And he does it really well here in just these two awful people making each other more awful. Yeah. I mean, I think I read, or I think I heard a podcast talking about this feels more like a Richard Bachman than a Stephen King. To a mm-hmm. certain degree, and some of that's when it's grounded in realism, and 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 some of it's just like the overall style. But this goes back to my central question at the top, which was, where does sort of '70s King end? And to me, I mean, I'm looking at I think like everything up to it. See, I was going to say, and I know we're going to talk about Pet Cemetery some other time. I was going to say Pet Cemetery does not feel like '70s King to me. It feels more mature and confident in depicting a family dynamic. I, I Well, I guess The Shining and stuff like that. I'm halfway through a reread of Pet Cemetery right now, and what's killing me most and hurting me the most is how effective the family dynamic is. Because I keep thinking, like, boy, when this falls apart, that's going to make me feel terrible. So Yeah, because 83... Man, he was so prolific. 83, he has Christine come out and Pet Cemetery and Cycle the Werewolf. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of like Christine as feeling much more seventies and, and pet cemetery feeling much more eighties. Christine pet cemetery feels much more eighties. I don't know. I feel, I still think everything, I would say everything in his first, everything up through it feels like his first big blast of stuff. And then you get into the shoddy cocaine years. Um, and then into the recovery era and things like that. But even I, like so. I enjoy books like Misery, but Misery feels more. Uh, it just feels slicker, like more mm-hmm. polished, less. Um, I mean, it's a mean book for sure. It's terrifying. But she, Annie Wilkes doesn't feel like mean spirited in the same sort of 70s way to me that some of his earlier 
villains or protagonists were. I don't know. I This is a totally arbitrary conversation. I'm sure we're going to get emails from Stephen King heads who are like, you bros don't know what you're talking about, which is totally fair. <laughs> no, whatever. I mean, like, uh, I like the debate on 70s versus 80s. I mean, you do bring up a good point. There are times when he is maturing. That's why I really want to go back and reread Salem's Lot more than any other, because in everything I've read, there are people who just love that book, and I don't remember reading it, what I loved about it from the first time I read it from years and years and years ago. So I'm looking forward to that one. Well, I, so. I think of them, I also think that there's a huge shift from like that 80s, late 80s, early 90s King into the 2000s. Like for me, Gerald's game is a big shift where it's like, yeah. oh, he starts writing about, out. writing about women in ways that aren't just like her supple A cup, you know, what <laughs> vibrated against the dashboard of whatever. I mean, he's, He's he's tackling things differently. I still think Needful Things to me is closer to like mid eighties King than, um, uh, you know. Than, he said as much that about later. that 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 was his response to the greed of the eighties. You know, like was Needful yeah. Things. So, um, well, well, how did we do in our first book club here, Gareth? Uh, I don't, look. I I think it's fine. I love that it drove us to read this. Um, I really enjoyed different seasons. And apt pupil was, ugh, ugh. <laughs> yeah. But I recommend it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Look, go I, check it out. We're talking about Stephen King. Like this is supposed to make you uncomfortable. We're trying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's end with some shout outs. Shout out to Maury Brown. Go check out his work at Forbes. Uh, go check him out on Twitter. And look up his band, um, shoot to thrill, uh, doing doing the doing the deeds uh, <laughs> or whatever. I'm trying to think of the song. What is it? Uh, Dirty, Dirty deeds, thunder and cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're getting the work done. Uh, anyway, I thought it was really fun to talk about him. And they're his about to rock. We salute them. That's yeah. all that matters. Amen. So. Uh, Gareth, any shout outs from you? No, I'm good. I've brought up enough weirdness on this podcast so <laughs> all right and in the immortal words of shaquille o'neal booty rappers stay booty 